0: We spend far too much time worried about what makes us different than the next person, or better than the next person, and not enough time thinking about why we should respect the next person. We all have a story, an overarching theme that runs through our lives and makes us who we are. The problem is, we think that since each of our stories is different, there's not a lot of perceived value or shared struggle, but we have far more in common than we can imagine, and what motivates one person can certainly help us as well. Third Lab Podcast is about understanding, respecting, and appreciating the struggle that it takes to overcome immeasurable odds in order to reach your destiny. Join me as I interview and bond with some of the most inspiring and incredible people, diving into their why to get a full understanding of their being. Without each other, we have nothing. So let's go on this adventure together and take on the future with open minds and open hearts. Welcome to the Third Lap Podcast. All right, everybody, thank you so much again for tuning in today for episode six of the Third Lap podcast. Today I have one of the homies, man, uh, somebody I haven't connected with as often recently, but somebody that, you know, I got a chance to. She was there in my very introduction into education and somebody I have the utmost respect for as just an educator, as a, a leader, and as a person that has done so much for her community and still... To, to this day does so much for her community. Simone Mouchette, who is the founder of Resilient Young Minds Incorporated and also a social worker. Um, so, Mouchette, what's going on? How's everything?
1: I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, it's good to see you. Now you don't got your dreads. I don't even know who I'm looking at, <laughs> but are you still tall? <laughs>
0: I'm still, I'm definitely still tall. Uh, yeah, the locks are going, but you know, I got the struggle throw going, man. It's been like seven and a half months since I got a cut, so I'm I'm planning to get it twisted up in like a month. So I uh I, I'm headed back down the locks road. You know, oh, wow. COVID kind of put me. Yeah, COVID took me took me back out that I had the shortcut. And, you know, you know the pandemic shut down my barber for the most part, so I'm gonna grow the locks back out. Hopefully. Um, probably not as long as they were back in the day, but I'm, I'm headed back that way. <laughs> okay. and so I gave the people a brief introduction of who you are, but I would love to give you like 60 seconds here just to talk a little bit about who you are and uh, just, you know, let people know what you're up to.
1: Okay. Um, like you said, I'm Simone Michette. I have a bachelor's in psychology, a master's of arts and teaching and a master's in social work. Um, I started off as an educator, I was taught for seven years, first in the South Bronx for two years, um, and then I went on into the charter world as a high school reading intervention teacher, Um, and through my time teaching from the beginning, I always cared more so about the whole child and their emotional well-being. Um, which kind of conflicted with my role as an educator. And so I went back to school and got a master's as a social worker so that I could support students outside of the classroom based off of the several different needs um, that they have. In addition to that, I started a nonprofit organization called Resilient Young Minds, where we work with at-risk youth in Brooklyn who have experienced trauma. And what we do is we teach them resilience on three level the personal, the professional, and the social levels. Um, we also provide them with a mentor that is of the same gender. Um, Cause I believe when it comes to trauma, men and women have different types of trauma that they experience that the opposite se- sex could probably can't speak to. So as a black woman, I could never mentor a black man, a young black man on the trauma of being a black man in America. Cause I've never experienced that firsthand. Um, I could give suggestions, but the experience itself, I, I know I couldn't. Um, and vice versa for a man mentoring a woman. So, everything that we do, we try to keep it um, same gender. Um, they mentor for a year. That's pretty much it. I feel like I'm probably leaving stuff out because people tell me what I do more than what I say because I don't go around bragging like, oh, I did A, B, C, D. But those are like the main things that I'm doing now. I did recently publish a book called Diary of a First-Year Teacher, where I kind of spoke about my first year teaching ever in the South Bronx. It's kind of like a little tell-all book, but names were changed. But it was just more of me wanting to give a real nitty-gritty, honestly tired of seeing educators coming in and quitting coming in with their biases and stereotypes and then running away and leaving our kids. I'm tired of us not stepping up to educate our kids and seeing what they, um, what it takes to really teach and just turning our eye like I can't be a teacher. It's, it's, it's just interesting. That was like the whole reasoning behind the book. The pandemic helped me get it published because that's a book that was seven years in the making. And I'm working on another book Right now, called Cultivating Resilience in a Post-Pandemic World, that's more of my self-help book, and it's more related to my social work practice now, what I do at Resilient Young Minds, because I'm finding that a lot of the work that we're doing with the young people can actually benefit adults, and it has been, and adults have been asking, what am I doing to support them, what services that I have, so I'm currently a school social worker in the DOE. Fun fact, my principal at the very first school where we worked at is now the superintendent in the district that I'm now working at. So (laughs) the world is very small. So I'm still in the school building. It's difficult. I love it. I'm in a difficult school. I'm in elementary school, too. I've never been in elementary school. So now I've worked in all settings, middle, high school. And now elementary school so i can i'm starting to consider myself a youth expert at this point
0: and simone was invaluable to me when i started my career in education with citizen schools as a teaching associate and then eventually as a teacher fellow you know she was tough on me because she saw that i had some potential and i wasn't always meeting that expectation but she was fair right like she she would step up and she would also give me guidance around how to get better and you know that was again that was imperative for me because I stepped into education without a background in education, without really knowing anything about teaching. I just knew that my community need me, and you know, I wanted to be able to serve in a in a higher capacity than I had been previously. And so much, much you know, I never really got a chance to thank you. So this is a great opportunity for me to thank you and for us to be able to kind of have this conversation today. Um, but you know, you you were instrumental to my growth and development um, as a as a teacher, and you know. Uh, I'm eternally grateful for the time that we got. We were able to spend together and that building was not easy. Not everybody was in there trying to do the work that we were trying to do and not everybody was on the same page but ultimately, you know, I got a chance to see you build really strong relationships with those students. Some of those kids I'm still cool with today and communicate with today. So, you know, thank you, man. I really appreciate you. I'm glad that you've been able to continue on your pathway as an author and as a leader. Your, your resiliency is something that A child, teenager, adult, we all need resiliency because life is hard and it's always going to provide you challenges and you have to figure out ways. I had to figure out how to get on Zoom today so that we can have this conversation, right? (laughs) And so resiliency serves itself in so many ways. I'm so happy for you. The book, I'm sure, is dope. That first year of teaching is, everybody knows the first year of teaching is the hardest And so I'm glad that you're also able to kind of give a manual for people to look at and read and understand some of those pitfalls. They aren't by themselves. And so this next segment here is really called Rep Your Hood, where you get a chance to talk about where you're from. You mentioned where you work and you mentioned where Young Resilient Minds, you know, resides. And so tell the people where you're from. Well,
1: first off, thank you. I had no idea that I had any type of impact. At all on you, so I really appreciate that. Um, I appreciated the time as a black man. I appreciated that you didn't quit (laughs) and you stayed through the to the fullest. So um, thank you for that, cause I'm almost teared up, but I'm holding it together. Where am I from? I'm at BK all day. Brooklyn. (laughs)
0: Brooklyn.
1: Um, Born in Brookdale Hospital, East New York, Brownsville area. Canarsie, 100%, born in the hood, raised in the hood. I was, I never behaved hood. I will say that my mother raised me proper, but I hung out with goons. I know the life, and that's a that's a lot of where my passion comes from. Because coming out and leaving and going to college and doing more made me realize how much of my people are missing, how much that. They don't really get to see how much they don't know. Like, you can't expect somebody to dream about something that they don't even know exists. What else you want to do? Yeah, that's,
0: that's a big piece of it. <laughs> no, that's that's good. And, and, like, that's a great point, right, around also what you were saying before with trauma and, and how a Black man can speak to a young Black man, a Black woman can speak to a young Black woman. Representation is also super important. We don't know, we, we can't see. And so, actually, I, there's an example of, that that i tell people still to this day and it came from you i forget the young man's name but that was my boy but you you had your students write letters to somebody that mattered to them in the building and you deliver one to me of a young man that um had looked up to me because i dressed professionally and in his letter he mentioned that i was the only black man that he saw dressed that way and like saw me as a role model and that to this day like mm-hmm. i'm off the cry, because like that's to this day still touches me and touches my heart and it showed me that i had to step it up even more because i was wearing khakis and oversized t shirt oversized button-ups i wasn't even looking good right so you know but it also showed me why representation matters and if people can't see what they want to become they don't necessarily know it's real and so when we knock our young brothers and sisters for wanting to be entertainers and athletes What other representation are they actively seeing, right? What else is being perpetuated and shown to them in where they're growing up? And so I love the fact, Mushet, that you went to college and you realized that where you're from, there are so many people that never get that experience. And you turned around and you went right back to your hood. You went right back to the goons. In the last episode I taped, we were talking about this show is for the goons the same way as for the academics, right? Like you for the goons the same way you for the academics because we realized that if we aren't, able to bridge that gap, we're going to leave the goons behind and that never should be the case. And so it's a great sort of segue to talk about your the beginning of your career. And so you mentioned that you started off as an educator, eventually transitioned out of classrooms. You, you had your bachelor's in psychology, but then decided to teach. Talk to us about that. Like, how did you make that choice? Why did you make that choice? How did you end up at citizen schools?
1: I think initially in high school, I went through a lot of socio-emotional struggles, insecurities, um, low self-esteem. I used to be a cutter. So I used to self-injure and do all these things. And a teacher noticed me and decided, well, she didn't really notice me. I wrote about it in my college essay, and she felt concerned. So she sent me to the counselor's office, and I observed something interesting that day. And I was in the waiting area, and the same counselor that I was supposed to see was yelling at another kid who had got brought into the office for misbehavior. And he was yelling at the kid like, yo, he's bad for our statistics, get him out of here. Um, sent him and she said bay I went to midwood high School be from Brooklyn so when they said that I was like dang that was like one of the top three like there was that was one of the worst high schools in Brooklyn but it was just funny like now that I look back on it in the moment I didn't think that was funny at all but um he said you know send him up there like because he's bad for our statistics and I just that bothered me and then when I went in and he's talking to me he looked like he was very like annoyed like, she called and said, this student has an issue, I'm concerned. And he knew based off of the nature of what the teacher said, he had to follow up. Now that I'm in the field, so I understand the other side too. He had to follow up, so he had to stop whatever his plans were for the day to speak to me. And it felt that way in the moment. I didn't understand the system or why he was meeting with me or why I had to go. But now that I'm in the that side of the field, I I realized that's what it was. He was annoyed, um, because I done messed up his day, like his plan. He was acting that way. He was very short, um, very like quick to try to like tell me what all my issues were. And then he said, you know, I want you to look in the mirror every day, and I want you to say these three like affirmations like I'm beautiful, I'm smart, and all this other stuff. And I was just looking at him like I know I'm not gonna say that. Like we was all teenagers, we work with kids, we know that attitude. Like <laughs> I'm not doing that. But um, it, w- I was ready going into testing mode. So you said you're gonna follow up with me in a week. So I wasn't gonna do it. And I was like, you ain't gonna follow up with me in a week. And he never did. And when I went to graduation, like was a- when I was shaking his hand across the stage. You know he said, "Wow, you 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 graduated." It was like I was never a bad kid. Like I was going to graduate, that wasn't in question. I just used to do things to myself. I had a bad self esteem and my teacher noticed. That's all it was. Um but that day it just made me realize that like a lot of other kids or my friends or peers, they were going through things too. And for whatever reason, I still think I give it to God cuz God is intentional. He knows what he's doing. That week just different people of my friends just started telling me stuff. You know, one of my friends telling me like, you know, she was raped. This person telling me they're going through this at home. And it just started make me realize like, who's helping us? There's nobody here to help us. Who's helping us in the school with these type of issues? All people care about our grades and essays and tests, but who's actually helping us? And so that made me decide, you know what? I'm gonna be a school psychologist and I'm gonna be that person that is going to help young people that are going through this. So I didn't know how at the time in my mind, that's what a school psychologist was supposed to do. And we didn't have one of those in my building. So that's what I assumed. And that's why I went into major in psychology in undergrad. And undergrad is where I learned a lot of different things I was a part of different things. I became a member of Sigma Gamma Rho Sorority Incorporated. I was a part of Middle Earth, I was an RA. So I did all these different things um, on campus that forced me to one, develop my leadership skills, but two, they were all things that forced me to help people. As an RA, you have to help people as a, you know, outreach person in Middle Earth, you had to help people like all those things were all aligned. And then the biggest thing that I accomplished, I joined a mentoring club in college called Sisters with Pride. And that was like my thing. I was the first club I joined when I got on campus. And I worked my way up to being the board vice president and president. And while I was president, I wrote a proposal. And I decided to start an after-school program at Albany High School. And that's when the, the connection of being a teacher started to come in. I want—I knew then I wanted to be a social worker. But you know what everybody tells you. When you say you want to be a social worker, the first thing they say is what? They don't make no money. But when we back in the hood, we don't see educated um social workers making money. All we know is that they come and take our kids and they cry because they broke. That's all that we know. That's our view of what social workers are. And that's what everyone was telling me, including my own mother, right? Like, so several people kept discouraging me, even though that was where my heart was at. But because I had this after school program where I did similar things in terms of teaching young girls about self-esteem and things of that nature, my after after school won an award. The city of Albany gave us an award that year um, that I regret not taking with me, (laughs) but, um, so the impact was that great, and that was the first time I realized, like, oh, snap, I could stand up in front of teenagers, and they respect me, and at the time, I was, what, 21, 22, or not even 22 yet, um, so it was, they weren't that much younger than me, they were 16, 17 years old, so that's what kind of, like, gave me the confidence that I could do that, and my mom talking to me, trying to, trying to be supportive, and helping me figure out what I'm going to do. I'm in my senior year. I need a job. What is it? Gonna, what am I going to do? And what grad program am I, am I applying? So I applied to teaching programs. Um, I applied to social work programs. I got rejected from Hunter for social work. They have the most competitive social work program. I didn't know at the time, but I got accepted for education and then because I knew I was interested in education when I went to the job fair, I signed up for citizen schools, AmeriCorps, TFA. I did all the work. Citizen schools was the only one that liked me. <laughs> and so that's how I really ended up at citizen school because my mom said, you know what? You could be a principal. I see you as a principal. And I was like, you know, to be a principal, you have to be a teacher, right? Like, I don't like teaching. I never wanted to teach kids. It's just so funny how God works. like." That was one career I just didn't want to do because I didn't want to deal with no badass kids. I'm sorry, but that's where I was at at that time. But I did it anyway. (laughs) And I ended up loving the kids. The bad kids are my favorite. You know that. Now, um, so that's how I ended up transitioning into education. And then after um, doing citizen schools, being in citizen schools and in the Bronx with those kids, getting to know them and realize how much baggage they come in with as kids. And I actually wanted to get to know my kids as they got to know me. I wanted to get to know them and they would tell me their business. And that would just make my heart break and wanting to do the different things, especially with the eighth grade dances. Like I just wanted to be that light and I'm not allowed to be that light when you're a teacher. There's certain boundaries that, you know, you can't cross. I knew that when I left there, I was thinking about, when I left that school, I realized, like, I needed to think about if I wanted to really be a teacher. And then I went to Uncommon. <laughs> My time there was very short. But when I went there, as intentional. I needed to go there. I met the school social worker at Uncommon. And she was just telling, I liked what she did. I saw her role. To me, it looked way less stressful. It was because that was like, it was, it was uncommon. Like the kids were calm. (laughs) Um, But I liked the the work that she was doing and she put me on and she was just like, no, social workers do make money. I got this full salary. I got my side gig over here doing therapy. I got this going on. She was like, "Uh, I'm comfortable and she was under 30 so i was like you know what sis thank you i needed that i needed this conversation and i went and i decided like i'm apply and i applied from the social work program at liu and they were the first to accept me i was also applying to fordham and other schools but liu like responded to me so quickly that I didn't even apply to anywhere else. That following year, I started my social work degree and I also left Uncommon. I left Uncommon after three months because we just didn't align. Our, my teaching style and their school system just didn't align. Um, so I had to walk away. But yeah, that's how I ended up deciding I'm going to do social work. And then I went to the high school, um, New Vision Charter High School, which is at the Sheepshead Bay High School campus. <laughs> and the kids over is a different type of charter, different environment, very similar to DOE. Them kids thought they were goons too. And I just enjoyed it more because I just liked those types of students. And I started teaching kids in 9th, 10th, and 11th grade that could not read. And so that became a new passion. So even though I was pursuing social work, I, I had a renewed passion for education because I felt it was my duty to recover these children from the failed teachers that allowed them to get to high school with not being able to read like when you see that movie when they see us when the young man the 16 year old, i forget his name right now but was reading the statement that they wrote for him and he said i can't read that's real i i saw that every day for the five years that i taught that program up until november 2019 when i left that school kids were still coming in currently to ninth and 10th grade reading on a third grade level it's a very real thing you're listening to the third lap podcast with mal davis yeah but, no, that's real mm-hmm.
0: it's 100 percent real and you know it's also why there's that humongous dropout rate between eighth grade and ninth grade where you see so many kids not making it through that summer to show up for high school because they just weren't prepared. And that whole no child left behind in theory was supposed to like ensure that kids made it to graduate and made it to, you know, finish high school. But in reality, when you're just passing kids along that don't have the fundamental skills that they need and nobody ensured that they got them, right? We talking failures in elementary school, right? If a kid is not reading past a third grade level, then that means from fourth grade until ninth grade nobody intervened nobody addressed it nobody came up with contingency plans most likely they didn't have IEP, so they also didn't have learning goals at 504s and so you know to all the educators listening and we're shaking the head right now but like anybody that knows anything about education knows that like there are so many times where someone should have intervened and done something about that and the fact that it goes unaddressed is appalling um and you know why People want to see the police defunded in our schools getting some of that money back and the police defunded and social workers getting opportunities and more social services available in our communities is because we need that money. Right. Like that's where those intervention methods come from. When you have teachers overworked and social workers with a hundred kid caseloads. Obviously folks are going to fall through the cracks. And when those kids fall through the cracks, that means that like that school to prison pipeline is only getting stronger. Right. And so I love the fact that through the... And, and your story is similar to mine. like, I fell in education. I was not trying to teach. I did not want to teach. But then when I finally got in there, like you said, you know, the toughest kids were my favorite ones. You know, I remember one of the TF2s called me the bad kid whisperer. And I was like, you know, the reason why is because I don't think that there's a such thing as a bad kid. They don't exist, right? There are kids that need more help than others, but a bad kid is a, is a misnomer. Like, it, it's, it's a facade. You just didn't take the time to learn these kids are really about. And so, you know, you talked about, like, your pathway into education and your pathway into figuring these things out. And again, this is the Third Lab podcast. I'm sitting here with Simone Mouchette, the homie, um, social worker, author, creator, and visionary. And so talk to us a little bit about those difficulties. Like, as you made that transition away from teaching and into social work, I know that, like, crossing that void, crossing that gap couldn't have been easy. So what are some of the, like, difficulties? What are some of the things that you really had to overcome as a professional and as a person to be able to get to where you are right now?
1: I think my biggest challenge was understanding or knowing how to work with educators who didn't care as much as I cared. Like, that was a real big deal. Um, Eventually, I moved up into being an instructional coach and And all that. And I realized that I was kind of tough or harsh in the way that I communicated um, with other staff members because I just felt like, why are you here? If you don't want the kids to be successful, why are you here? Or they think that they want them to be successful, but they're not willing to put in the work for them to be successful and I always took responsibility. Like if my kids is not growing or reading by the end of the year, like forget your mini miniature uh, standards of growing one Lexile level. No, 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 no. You're five grades behind. I'm trying to get you at least four of those grades by the end of the year. Like I don't even talk about the minimum with them. So I had really strong data Um, And that that kept me in that role every year, people visiting from other schools to try to pick up on the technique. And no one, as many people that came into the classroom to observe me, they couldn't pick up any of my techniques. And to this day, I would say the reason is, is because they don't want the kids to read more than the way I want the kids to read. Like, I want my students to read more than they even want to read like it's by any means necessary you're gonna read to the point where they start to have their own convictions they track their own reading growth they get getting excited when we take the nexus assessment like oh miss i grew this amount this amount all right so i got this amount to go right getting them invested in knowing and understanding because i had to have a real conversation with them and people me on this because they're like oh how do you have time to um speak to your students and have conversations aren't you like behind in the curriculum aren't they already behind because I used to teach Wilson reading just words and read 180 if anyone's familiar with HMH so some people struggle with completing the program in one school year I'm not really understanding how they wouldn't because I personally have my kids every single day So that was definitely one help that they definitely kept every year um, since they I've been teaching it. But I had them every day. And if they weren't just words or read 180, we got through the whole thing pretty much in one year. While I still had these real conversation, I had to sit down with them and we had to reflect on how we got here. What was going on? Were you going to school? Were you like, were you going through like things at home? what were your teachers doing like nobody noticed that you couldn't read like these are the conversations i would have and that would be a challenge for mostly adults all the challenges that i faced were administration making decisions that I believed was not in the best interest of the students and me vocalizing it, my mouth got me. I don't wanna say in trouble, but like people made things a little difficult for me because of my mouth. So like, for example, really quickly, we were having an issue cause this is high school now. So these are teenagers, so it's different. They, they, they bigger than you. So um, there was a school policy um no eating in class they were trying to implement so we're having a whole meeting this is real a whole meeting to discuss why the no eating policy is difficult to implement so i'm like okay and so if they're asking like what do you do what do you do i'm like i don't have problems with kids eating in my class oh well you don't teach first period i actually do teach first period i still don't have issues with kids eating in my class what did you do i tell them i'm gonna throw it in the garbage and one time one kid tried me He was an 11th grader who was, like, almost 18. And he said, no, you won't. I said, say I won't. He said, no, you won't. You a punk or something. I said, word, dropped it right in the trash. I said, I never had an issue with a kid eating in class, in my class, ever again. And they're like, oh, no, that's wrong. You can't throw away their lunch. It's not about me throwing their lunch. I told him three times prior to that, if he didn't put it away, that's what I was going to do. He made a choice to have his food thrown out as opposed to putting it away for later. But they didn't get that. So it was one of those things. And so it'll be situations like that and people be all judgy and catch an attitude So those were like my main challenge. And then the other one was that I would get told, you're not a social worker. You're not a social worker. Um, Because I'll be concerned with certain students if they get in trouble by other people, but I don't have a problem with them. So I have a tendency to advocate. Um, And I'll be like, did you know that they're going through this right now? So like when he had a little tube, he already came in with that. And then like the way you greeted him, that wasn't really nice. That wasn't really kind. And I'll get that, oh, you're not a social worker, you're not of this, you're not of that. Even though I similar to what I did at in the Bronx when we worked, I did talent shows. I coached the STEP team. I had an all girls like girl group. I empowered some men to do a men's group. Like I was on all these other school culture things. Um still. Um, And I would get told like, oh, you're not a social worker. And so that's why I was like, okay, well, I'm leaving to be a social worker because clearly that's what I need to be in order to be successful. And that's what I did.
0: And I definitely remember you advocating for students like that at citizen schools. There was this one young lady who, she was a sixth grader and she used to just curse nonstop. And you're like, you know me, I'm like, yo, we can't have it like this. And so we talked one day, she was in your class, and then I had her in the afternoons for CS. And you were like, oh, she has emotional defiance disorder. And that was the first time I had ever heard of EDD. I had never, it was never a thing in, in like my brain. So I'm like, oh, yo, nah, you just justifying her being out of pocket. Like, get out of here with that, man. Um, And you know, all these years later now, you know, emotional defiance disorder is a real thing. And But I reflect back on her and the things that she had going on and the fact that, like, we used to have to give her extra, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We have to give her extra snacks and, like, you know, because she would go home and she wouldn't eat and stuff. And it's just, like, as a teacher, as an educator, so many times, like, we just aren't in the frame of mind of empathy. It's like you said, we got to meet state test scores and we have administration coming in to observe us. And, you know, I, I love the fact that, I'm now interacting with. And, you know, in 2020, that is beginning to really change and shift. And there are so many more educators that are operated from a social emotional learning standpoint and are like, yo, like unless we address what's going on in their life, how can we assess them and expect them to come in and be their best selves when as adults we're going through all of these difficulties and it's hard for us to show up in our workplaces professionals sometimes. And so I love that like that shift is happening, but I've also been in situations previous years ago where like that wasn't a conversation at all. Um, and so, yeah, you you railed into me a couple times, uh, you know, when I first started out, you got with me. So I know the mouth, man, I know how that go. Uh, but again, you know, like you said, I was there. I wasn't ever going to quit because I knew that I had a purpose and, and this was a part of my pathway. And even though I'm not in a class any longer, like those years in the classroom and those years working and serving students in the capacity in which I did helped me become the professional that I am now. And really is a part of why we're having this show in the first place, because I realized that, like, so much of this information stays amongst us, but then we don't really put it out there. So I love the fact that you wrote the book. I love the fact that you're in the process of writing another one, that you started your nonprofit, that you made this transition from teaching and realizing that like your purpose wasn't being served correctly in a classroom and that you had to be, like you said, like I'm out, I'm out of here. Oh, I'm not a social worker. Guess what? I'm a social worker now. And so, you know, now I can really serve my purpose in the way that I'm supposed to and not turn around and look back. And so, you know, as a social worker in the seat in which you are now and looking and projecting forward, where do you see Mouchette going in the future?
1: Disney world, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I so much, I wanna, like my dream is to open a residential school. Um, I wanna open a school where it's preventative, Where trouble and at-risk youth can go to um I don't know if you ever heard of the movie The Hive but it's with uh Loretta Devine is in it but I have that vision in a co-ed school for just at-risk youth so when I think about the eighth graders at our first school I think about them all the time I think about specific one specific eighth grader and I'm gonna say her name because I don't know how far your podcast gonna go and I want her to reach out to me her name was Mariella, and she was over age in eighth grade, and <laughs> she was she was she was an issue. <laughs> but her and I connected. That was um, one of my 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 babies she told me a lot of things and one of the things that stuck with me, I think I talked about it in the book too. One of the things that stuck with me was that she wanted to do well, but because the hood already knew her to be one thing, she felt like she had to continue to maintain that. Like she was a leader in the hood. So she couldn't just stop. And she just wished that, you know, she could be taken out of the community so that she could have a chance to do well I followed up on her Um, the last I heard. She had stopped going to school, but I don't know if it was indefinitely or if it was for a time. That's where that thought came, started from for me. Like, I need a, I wanna make a school, just like how they have these schools, these rehab centers. I'm a family therapist as well, I forgot to say that. Um, Part-time, I work in a residential already for kids who are on drugs, need rehab. Or it's an alternative to incarceration. So if you were high when you did your crime or what have you, the, the your lawyer would advocate for you to go to rehab for a Y.O. or something like that. So I do family therapy in that setting. And I'm just like, all of this stuff is like after the fact. Like it's responsive. Like I want to do something that's preventative. When you start seeing them signs, send them to me. Send them to Rhyme Academy, Upstate or in some wilderness where it's a campus you can't run you from the city so where you're going and they live there they eat there and I want to make it like a whole college type vibe they're in high school but I wanted to just like how they have prep school for athletes that's the type of school that I would like to have I want there to still be therapy and all that other stuff but also just showing them other things without them having to be distracted by the environment one of the main things I do at Rhyme I take everyone away on a retreat because it's something about when you're taking out of your own vi- environment the peace you feel safe to one share but safe to move forward to the next chapter I feel like our kids need that in order to really let go of the stress and the obligation of their current community or their family to be able to move forward. So that's my real, like my real ultimate goal, my dream. Some short term girls, you know, something simple. I hope, you know, maybe I get called for a TED talk. <laughs> um, you know, continue writing books. That's it, just continuing helping people. I'm starting up an adult version of Rhyme. So moving into the workshop model to work with college students, Um, and young adults. I'm actually doing a young adult retreat in May, um, which is the same thing that I do for the kids, but it's just going to be adults on the trip. Um, They won't get mentors, but at least they'll get the experience of the retreat. Um, And I got that idea because my mentors went on the retreat last year. The first year I did, I didn't take any mentors, just kids. But last year I took the mentors and the kids before they were paired up and the mentors were like, really into it like whew, way more into it and when I did my recap video and just reflecting on hey what was your favorite rhyme moment in the year when I tell you every single person mentioned the retreat May is Mental Health Awareness Month
0: and and, and that's that teacher brain
1: <laughs> the teacher brain
0: that's that teacher brain looking at the, at the data yeah that's that data that's that yeah. data mindset right <laughs> going back that through and realizing that Everybody named that same event, you know, a 100% all the time. And that's dope. Um, and, you know, I love that you're expanding now to young adults who absolutely need that bridge, too, because so many times – shout-out to Ella too. I remember her. Um, and I told my wife – we were talking the other day, and I told her that eighth-grade group that I, when I was a TA, the toughest kids I've ever met in my entire life, yo. Toughest group of kids I've ever worked with. And I've been – goons and hey, you know what i mean like
1: didn't flinch she was like i'm built for this it was scary.
0: yo goons. like that group it was a group of like five girls who were the toughest people yeah. not even young women or women the toughest people i remember they were trying to jump this girl and i and you know me i jump head first and i came from residential treatment doing restraints and everything so it was never a situation of being afraid but i'll be transparent they was about to jump the girl And they right down in the middle between the cafeteria where you go outside. And so I'm standing there and I'm like a month in, so I don't really know them, they don't know me. But when you heard certified, you can assess the situation real quick. You're like, all right, they really about to get busy down here. So I'm looking at the girls and I already know their reputation. And so I'm like, I got to step in, but like, they might jump me to (laughs) that. Like me and Shorty both might get washed out here, might be ugly. And so I stepped in and I was like, listen, you know it, it can't happen like this and i forget the young woman's name it was a, it was a black young lady and she was like yeah you got it mr davis and like they kept it pushing and that was the thing right it's like when you step to him with res- like respect res- gets respect and that's across the board when you disrespectful that's when the kids become disrespectful and there was one young man who i was working with i was trying to help him because you know how we would do the like uh high school application process and the matching and everything through cs and so he was like back and forth with suspensions. Finally came back, so I called him. We was talking one day, and I was like, "I helped him before he got suspended, and then he came back from suspension." And so I'm talking to him, and I'm like, "Yo, did you finish the high school application process? Like, what's going on with that?" And he looked me in my eyes, and he was like, "Yo, Mr. Davis, he was like, you know, I gotta go to a high school where I can keep the tool on me because I got a lot of beef out here. It was like if I go somewhere where like they catch me naked, like that could be that could be it for me, and." That was it right there in that moment. That's when I was like, yo, our kids are dealing with so much on top of just being children and education that how can we have the audacity to expect X, Y, and Z and we not addressing that core essential need of safety. That this kid, despite him wanting to be anything in the world, like you said, Mariela, if you take her away from that situation and put her in the suburbs or put her somewhere else in another state, shines brightly. But because she's certified and a leader and the expectation is she's gonna always step up, that's it, you gotta meet that expectation. So when he told me that, I just hugged him, man. You know, real talk, I hugged him and I was like, listen, I get it, you know? You're not talking to somebody that don't understand that beef, like I understand where you're coming from and I love you, man, for being honest with me. Anything I could do to support you moving forward, I'm here for you, but like, I can't argue against that. And what our school was was surrounded by like three or four different gangs and so, you know, if you got caught slacking, you got caught slacking and plenty of people got mopped up out there, unfortunately, and still are to this day, you know? And so I like that you trying to take these kids away from their element and show them something different. Um, and that's imperative because again, like we said in the beginning, you don't know what you can't see, right? And so until you are seen the trees and the forest and horseback riding I had, at that residential treatment facility, we took the kids horseback riding these crips, bloods, these kids with drug, gun possessions, all types of stuff, they riding horses with the biggest smiles on their face I've ever seen. And at the end of the session, I told them, when you go back home to your hood, to your block, to your set, to your gang, you are forever different. You will not be able to relate on the same level as them. And you ultimately now have a choice to make, yo. And I pray for those kids every day because I know how hard it is to make that choice to do something different moving forward.
1: You're listening to the Third Lap Podcast with Mal Davis.
0: Yeah. And so who you know, you've, you shed so much light on your career on your just pathway and journey to where you are. And then ultimately talked about where you want to go. I would love to hear, you know, I think that like you can assess that the kids, right. are of motivation, your hood is your motivation, but like what motivates you to keep going through all of these tough days that you've already faced and, you know, all of the tough days that clearly are going to be ahead of you, what keeps you going and moving forward?
1: The children wanting to make a difference, wanting to um, be the change. Um, that's really what it is. Um, everyone makes fun of me because they're like, "Oh, you're so Jamaican. You have like 50 million jobs." And I think part of that, <laughs> part of that is is also not wanting to go back to poverty. Like I know what that felt like. You know I lived in a basement apartment for like the first 13 years. I don't ever want to go back there and be hungry again. Like so I'm doing everything in in my power. I got three degrees all this. Stuff. I'm trying to make it impossible to be back in poverty. So I have all these backups to the backup to the backup. Like when it was quarantine like people with stress. I was low key stressed too, but it was like, I had two jobs. So I was like, if one job don't work out, I still got the other one. One is an essential worker. So it's like, I'm still going to get a check here. Like that's how my mind (laughs) was going. And I got lucky because I was blessed. I was a DOE. So I was still a social worker remotely and I had extra hours at my second job. So I actually was kicking during the quarantine to be honest (laughs) so it was just like okay now you know so that's one that's one side of where my ambitions started from but now I'm on a different level because it's like I'm walking into my purpose and it feels different becoming more spiritual getting baptized in the beginning of 2019 like going to God when I have a conflict issues just don't feel the same like even with this job, I'm not gonna lie to you. First of all, God gave me that job because I didn't apply for this social work position. Um, I will say that I applied the year before to twenty, and I got rejected to all. And this one, someone reached out to me about the position that I got, and I was tied on the spot. So already, I felt like, okay, this is what he wanted me to be. He didn't want me to be anywhere else. This is, and there's uh, this deep. There's more details to that story that I'm not gonna get into, but. Just know this is what he wanted me, And this school is the toughest school I ever worked at. And this is elementary. And this is where it broke my heart because week one of working at that school, I broke up like four fights. This is elementary school. And it's sad. I physically broke up fights. Me, my five foot two self is ripping fifth graders apart that's about the same size as me or like thicker, literally pulling them apart, because I watch adults in the building watch the kids fight each other. I'm like, this is not high school where they're bigger than you. This is elementary school. I see all the things that I saw, like in the future with the other kids, like I already see it happening. I see kids that I can't read right now in elementary school. Like these are all the things that I was seeing in week one, like I was so beat. Um, shoot I can I'll tell you how extreme it is one of one of the kindergartners that I was working with very closely before we went into quarantine slapped the daylights out of me like I've never been really cursed out or slapped or touched by a a kid anywhere in any time but this five-year-old he slapped the life out of me. I'm not gonna say what happened after that, but that's to the level of extremity of how like the kids feel so unsafe. Everything is a fight. What you looking at? You looking at me? Funny? Ah ah. Boom boom boom. Like they were. Everything they did was just. I felt like I was on watching "Lean on Me" little people edition. Like that's how crazy it was. And I literally. I want to say single-handedly had to shift the culture with the kids because my principal was amazing but she had to do principal stuff so she wasn't always there um and so i was really by my because her and i are aligned but she wasn't there so i had to really use my instincts and jump in and have meetings i was documenting and i had to really get the kids to understand that we need to make this school feel safe and i had to talk to the adults and let them know, like, the kids don't feel safe. Like, why did you end up in that fight? Oh, because the teacher's not doing nothing. So, and the parents are like, well, I told them to hit the kid back if the teacher not gonna do anything. So, it's so much harm that was there. And, like, I had to restore. I had an anxiety attack. Like, so much happened where the quarantine turned out to be a blessing for me personally because I needed that break. But even though the work was hard and it was just a tougher environment for me, there's just something about, like, giving your problems to God and praying on it that really helped see me through. And my principal was a pastor. So that also, she had a moment where she prayed with me, you know. So because I was, you know, I am decided to be more spiritual and, and seek to the Almighty to to get me through the things is not as bad. So now I'm feeling my purpose. I see that I'm becoming a leader in different ways. Even the book, I didn't think it was going to have the impact that it had. I sold over 50 copies in the one week and I haven't ever, and that was just the week that I advertised it. I didn't, I don't advertise it anymore, but people still ask me about it. People still, I've gotten positive feedback from the people that actually read it. Um, I haven't gotten anything negative said. Um, people were surprised, eye open. So all of these blessings are coming, and I'm actually going to be launching um, a singles ministry at my church. My pastor asked me personally um, to start it based off of how I've been living and just my mindset in terms of how I see. Yeah, I want to be married one day, but. I'm not going to knock myself down for it. Like it is what it is. I feel like it's more important for me to walk in my purpose and whoever God has for me, like they're going to be in line with that destiny, that purpose he has for me. So I'm noticing that I used to always think I could only be a leader for youth. And now I'm starting to see doors opening where I can be a leader for my peers and adults as well, so I'm still praying on, praying on it to try to figure out what that is. And one of those steps is writing the self-help book, so that adults can access that information as well and open it for workshops and things of that nature. I feel like I didn't answer your question, though. Like I think I'm on a tangent.
0: No, you answered the question. That you, you perfectly answered the question. I appreciate you. Um, and you're not. You are 100% a leader of adults too. You know, I, I firsthand got a chance to see that. You know, I had my issues with some of the teaching fellows that I worked with, especially the TF2s that year that I was there, because a lot of folks were in that. Like, I, I remember there was a conversation amongst four TFs that they were talking, they were sitting at a table, and I happened to walk in because I had to get some resources. When I was a teaching associate, I was a TA. I wasn't in the TF yet. And so um, it was my first year. I walk in the office. It's like May-ish. And so it was four of them sitting at a table, and they're talking about how they can't understand why 8th graders are so happy about prom. Like, why is there an 8th grade prom? Like, why is there such a big celebration about this? And, like, I stopped and I talked and I, like, I turned to him and I was like, I don't even comprehend that. So many of these kids don't know anyone that's graduated high school. This might be the last time that they celebrate any sort of graduation, any sort of prom, any sort of anything. Some of these kids might not even make it to see that point. And the fact that y'all are supposed to be teaching them and building relationships with them, but you don't even take the time to comprehend that and have that empathy, says a lot about y'all. And I just walked out the office and like I had so much beef with that group of TF2s that it kind of like ruined my experience with citizen schools because I felt that we weren't always looking at recruiting people that were coming in for the right reasons. But like you and Caitlin Smith, like y'all two are my homies, man, like the two of y'all. I built with and bonded with, and y'all helped me so much to become a better person and educator through that time. But, Mouchette, for you specifically, 100%, you are a leader of people. You are a leader of men and women. You're a leader of children. You're just a leader in general. And I'm glad to see that you're now getting to the point where you comprehend it, right? Because until you get it, like, it's irrelevant. You know what I mean? It is what it is. People will see it in you, but until you see it in yourself and you're able to actualize it, and you know, I'm not religious, but I've prayed so much during this pandemic because I realized so much of it is out of my hands. I'm praying to God to protect my family from COVID. I'm praying to God to provide me and my wife, child that we can adopt. I'm praying to God just to make it through the day sometimes, right? As I'm seeing black men like myself getting murdered and shot on on social media, and I got to leave the house, right? I can't stay in the crib. I got to go places. And so, you know, the power of God and the power of understanding that sometimes you just have to give up the power to it and let it happen. And, you know, you prayer without action, to me, isn't purposeful. You got to pray and you got to move, right? You got to pray and you got to plan and then you got to implement and, and all of that together is strategic. But prayer without that implementation is also useless in my opinion as well. And so, you know, yes, keep keep pushing, keep actualizing yourself, keep materializing these things in your life. I love what you said about finding a partner too. Cause I think a lot of times, you know, I'm 35 now. So at this point, a lot of the people that I know that are within my age range are rushing to get married and be in relationships because they feel like that relationship defines them. Like, no, define yourself first. And then the right person will come and dig it, build with you. And they've already done the work too. But like, you don't ever want to give up who you are just to be a part of something that you think is right. Like that's never going to work out for you in the end. And so, you know, Moshe, as you continue this movement forward, I'm just I'm, I'm a champion. I'm I'm clapping in the corner, man. I'm cheering for you the whole way. And I have been, you know, and we haven't connected as often over the past few years. But like from this point, moving forward, like anytime you already know, if you need something, you need whatever you need. I'm always here. I've always been here. Um, this has just been a great opportunity for us to reconnect and it's been dope because we we haven't talked as often, and so we got to fill in some of these gaps around like what you've been doing, the way you've been, and your story is just so incredible, um, and I've, I've been so happy to have you on the show today. Once again, this is the Third Live Podcast with Miles Davis. I'm sitting here with the homie Simone Mouchette, who just, I can't even define her. She's just too dope. She, she's too dope for definition, man. And so, uh, Mouchette, I did, we're getting towards the end of the segment, and so I would love for you to, if People listen to this show, and they only walk away with like one message. What's your motivational message to people when they listen to your story?
1: I would say no, because it's not going to be my words. This is something that I saw um in grad school on a wall, actually, just hanging. So I think it was for me, and I've just been sharing it. Like that's what I me. Mean. Once I get something good, I want to share it, and. Um, I feel like it's important. I I spoke at a graduation last year. I was a keynote speaker at a graduation. I know I'm coming up. Um, And that was my message to the young people. I hope they received it. So this is going to be my message for a while now. It's by Alice Walker. And she said, the most common way people give up their power is by thinking that they don't have any. And I just want everyone to know that no matter what, you have power. Your power will always be choice. Regardless of what you go through, regardless of what situation you're in, you always have a choice. You have a choice to stay. You have a choice to leave. You have a choice to choose a different path. You have a choice to stay on your path. You have a choice to quit. And you have a choice to get back up. You always have a choice. It may not be the choice that you want, right? But even in not wanting, right, to do those two choices, you still have a choice to pick one. It was kind of like when we had Trump versus Hillary and people chose not to choose. And see how that, hand, how that played out? Because they thought they had no power with their vote. It's the same concept. You Even if it's between two evils, if it's between two amazing things, you always have a choice. You always have the power to choose, and that choice will lead to the next choice, to the next choice, to the next choice. I told someone this the other day. People see me and think that I'm so successful and all this other stuff, and it's like, that's great. I appreciate that love, but I had to do everything a second time. I didn't get accepted to college the first time. I didn't get accepted to Albany. I had to transfer, you know, and do it the same. When I was a RA, I didn't get it the first time. I had to reapply and try again the second time. New York Needs You was a very big program that influenced me in terms of my professional development. I didn't get accepted the first time. I had to do it the second time. Being an educator was my first career or being a social worker is what I wanted to do, but I didn't do it the first time. I was an educator first and now I'm doing it the second time. I had so many, I had to make so many choices to not give up when I really wanted to give up. When people told me I wasn't going to make it, when people told me, oh, you can't make a nonprofit. Like, oh, it's not going to be successful. Nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody's going to go live. Even in my own board, to be honest, there were doubts. Can we go virtual? We just did a live event on Saturday and it was amazing. You have the power to choose to not listen to the naysayers and listen to your heart follow you follow your heart you have that choice always that's where your power lies um and that's it you're listening to the third lap podcast with mal davis
0: yeah i love it that like you said the power of choice is so important we always have a choice right choose to do right choose to do wrong choose to do nothing but it's a choice and you made one and so you know when things happen the way they do you can't be mad at the outcomes if you didn't do anything to change it. And, you know, sometimes it's out of our control. Like we talked about sometimes the universe has something different in store for you, but you still have to actively pursue things, right? Like you, you pursue teaching. I love what you said too about like the second time, right? That's all about redemption. It's all about persistence. And to the point of, of your nonprofit, it's all about resiliency. If you didn't follow back up again, none of the things that you named would you ever been a part of because it didn't happen the first time around. And that's the same for me, you know, it took me forever to go to college. It took me five years to graduate high school. It took me a long time to get to where I am in my career. I had to sacrifice a lot, you know, I had to sacrifice everything really to get to where I am and It was worth every moment because without those things that i've done without that repeated opportunities and and numerous at-bats that's back to teacher talk right like all of the (laughs) at-bats you know without those things you don't get to the success you stay mired in defeat and you stay mired in failure and you look at yourself and there were times in my life where i saw myself as a failure because all i saw were the losses that continued to happen but i never realized that those losses were meant to teach me so i could win the next time around and so when you start to flip your mind state a little bit, when you start to change how you look at it and you just keep going, you'll break through, right? You'll break through no matter what, just keep going. And so, Mouchette, um, what are some of the things that, you, that you're reading, you mentioned Alice Walker, what are some of the things that you're reading or that you've read that have really helped to like, hone your mentality towards your life and towards where you're going?
1: Um, definitely The Power of Vulnerability, Renee Brown. I like to read a lot of her stuff. One book that honestly really um, impacted me, believe it or not, is called The Defining Decade by Meg J. Now, this is more for the people that are in their 20s. (laughs) Um, But I got to read it in my 20s, and I'm glad I did because it showed me that I was on the right track. Because people used to think that, you know, you're a square, you're always working, we never have fun. And society has that myth that your 20s is your time to have fun. But what Meg Jay, who's also a psychologist, what she highlights is that that's false because while that same society expects you to have fun all through your 20s, they expect you to, by 30, be married, have kids, have a career, and be in a nice big house with a white picket fence. So it's like, how are you supposed to be there at 30 if you was partying through your whole 20s. So she talks about ways on how to make the most of your 20s and identity capital and things that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be grinding in your 20s. You're supposed to be doing all those things because you're setting yourself up. You're laying the foundation for that stability that you want to have when you get into your thirties. And for me, that book was very um, motivating and it kind of was a confirmation that I was doing the right thing and I was on the right track. But for people who are, are partying, there's no offense, it could also be like a reality check, make sure, you know, like, okay, let's calm down. All my um, sorors that graduate, I try to give them that book, you know, as a gift. Anyone that a young person I know that's graduating college I buy them at that. That's their gift from me to them because, and I hope they actually read it because I know how pe- some people are when it comes to reading. But that really changed my life and the way that I thought of things. So now that I'm 29, about to be 30 in January, now the partner thing is starting to become a priority. But before, it wasn't really a priority. My, you know, my career was a priority. Um, but now I've done the work. To be ready for that now, next step. I'm thinking about buying a home, so now I'm at that mark where okay, this is where I'm supposed to be thinking because I I did all that work. So that's a really good book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That's a good book. I, I have a, there's a lot of books, so those are just the main ones.
0: And you could text me if you have any more. You could text me, <laughs> to me because, like I said, um. I have an entire like reading list on a thirdblackpodcast.com that I'm compiling from my own suggestions, but also the suggestions of all of the folks that I have on here. And that defining decade really hits home for me. I actually never heard of it until I was like about 35 now. I think I heard of it like a year ago, two years ago.
1: <laughs> and it was funny. I was
0: talking to somebody about the book and they were talking about how they read it. And it was so impactful for them And somebody I was interviewing at the time. And I was like, what? Like, talk to me about this book. And so they described it much like you did. And I was like, damn, I party my whole twenties, dog. I was going crazy till I was like 28. And then I had 28. I was like, oh, I'm 28. <laughs> I gotta tighten up now, I gotta tighten up. And so, you know, to anybody that's listening that is in your early to mid 20s, um, don't fall for the hype, man. Lay the foundation because 30 is the is an excellent decade. And I talked about this in a previous podcast, episode 30 and 30 to 39, right, is is a defining period. But don't be afraid of it because it's dope. If you put the work in, if you lay the foundation, if you do the right things, this is a gen- This is like the decade where you still have a lot of that young, youthful energy, but you also have a comprehension of life that is so drastically different than when you were 20. And so lay that foundation, work hard in your 20s, enjoy the fruits of your labor in your 30s. It, like I said, I started at 28. I was like, oh, snap. 28. I got to get it together. Now I'm 35 and I'm just catching up. And so, you know, I always tell folks, learn from my mistakes. Don't be me. Don't be like me. Do better than me. And anybody that comes behind me, I'm always telling them the same thing. And Mouchette, you know, when we met, that was maybe five or six years ago, and you had such a a high motivation for what you were trying to accomplish. and such a like acute vision of where you were going. It was amazing to see. And I'm 27, 28. I'm a couple of years older than you, right? And I'm just like, I don't have that. <laughs> I have no idea what's next. I just know that if I keep working hard and I keep putting my best, step, my best foot forward each step and I stay somebody that has high integrity and I'm not deceitful and a liar, like I'll make it where I'm trying to go. And so, you know, be intentional, plan, be purposeful and, you know, continue to just be intelligent. Um, the episode before this, I got a chance to speak to Marquise Richards, who is 25 and his goal for his age of 25 is intentionality. And I was like, yes, my brother, yes. that Right, snap to that, yes, that is it. Keep that mentality, keep that energy, and you will be just fine in life. And so, Bouchette, you know, we're we're now here at the end of this podcast, the Third Lap Podcast. I have enjoyed having you on here so much. It's just been great learning more about your story. You know, I felt as though I knew a lot of it, but then you gave me so much more information and context that I never knew even learning about you back in high school and sort of what led you to get to where you are now, which has been incredible. And so if when people are looking for you, for your book, um, to find out more information about your nonprofit, what's your social media information?
1: Um, It's my government, Simone underscore E underscore Mouchette. I'm on IG. I'm on Facebook. Um, that's it. If that's really the main connector, that's my page that can connect you to all those other things. But if you specifically uh, wanted to see more about my nonprofit, we have a website, www.ourrym.com. Um, and our IG um, and Facebook page is RYM underscore INC. But if you go to Simone E. Mouchette, on IG, I always um, tagging and posting and connecting all those things together.
0: And I am, as always, going to post Simone's information with the podcast, like links to her social media, links to her nonprofit, links to her book. So yeah, let's get, let's buy Simone's book. Let's move these copies for the homie. You know what I mean? Especially y'all going into education or thinking about making that transition into education. Read a firsthand example of somebody that was a dope educator because I can attest to that 100%. Simone was incredible, but somebody that also went through the, the pitfalls and trials and tribulations of a first year teacher. Learn from her mistakes, right? Learn from her example so that you don't have to necessarily go through all of those same things. And as always, you can find the podcast at Um It's the same on all the socials on Instagram, on Twitter, Facebook, and, and uh, LinkedIn. And Simone, yeah, man, we're, we're here at the end, yo. Shout outs to Brooklyn, man. You know, I had a bunch of people on here from uptown. It's about time I got the game. To oh, do this. Shout yeah. out to Brooklyn, you heard. Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. I love the sushi, Brooklyn,
1: you. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> All right, Brooklyn. We go hard. Let's
0: go, Brooklyn. Shout outs to Brooklyn. Um, and so yeah, any last, any last words, any last remarks before we log out.
1: No, but since you were promoting the book so hard, I actually told someone this the other day. If you have a group of people that are purchasing 10 or more of the books, I'll come out and do like a talk for free um, just to get the. Because I know a lot of people had a question, a lot of questions. I had a signing, and actually, Caitlin was there. Um, hey.
0: And, what up, Smith?
1: <laughs> um, and. Even just people sidebar, they keep coming up to me. So you're going to feel a way. You're going to want to ask me questions, Um, not on being cocky, just because mind is going to be blown because of some of the things that I disclose. Um, So I just want people to know that, you know, they could connect with me. Um, I'll do that as a gift back, a gift back for the
0: support. Um, but yeah, follow me on IG to so, get my followers up. Yes, sir. <laughs> follow, so follow Mouchette, buy the book, support the homie. You know, this is somebody that is supremely authentic, a real one, you know, from, from her toes to, her, to the hair follicles, man, on the top of her dome, she's a real one throwing and through. And so, Simone, it's been such a pleasure um, an honor, honestly, to be able to connect with somebody that has such a foundational impact on the beginning of my career. I'm so happy that you're finding your calling, that you're continuing to transition towards your path in life. And, you know, walk in that light, man. God has blessed you with so many talents and so much intelligence and just an immense amount of leadership ability. Continue to hone, hone all of that, move it all in the same direction. You know we've talked about and you know that first time might not be the breakthrough but that second time could be the chance and so you know once again this is mal davis this is the third lap podcast each one teach one we all learn together you all have a great night thank you for tuning into another episode of the third lap podcast this is your host mal davis please visit the third lap for more information about the podcast about our guests and also to see our reading list. You can find us at the Third Lap Podcast on LinkedIn and Facebook, at Third Lap on Twitter, and at Third underscore Lap underscore podcast on Instagram. If you know anyone that would be great to be featured on this show, please reach out to our host, Mal Davis. He's always looking for interesting people to learn more about them and to talk about their pathway. Thank you so much again. Have a good one.